For two years, Sandra Luz Hernandez skirted an abyss of violence and impunity that threatened to swallow her up at every turn. But she refused to back down. I'm going to be a rock in his shoe, she declared of the prosecutor in charge of investigating the forced disappearance of her son, Edgar. On February 12, 2012, a group of armed masked men stormed into his house in Culiacán, Sinaloa, and carried him away. He was never seen again. It was a typical levantón, literally a taking, where unknown men forcibly carry someone off, usually to a safe house or some remote location, sometimes for torture and interrogation, sometimes for ransom, sometimes for execution, and often for some combination of these and other torments. The perpetrators include organized crime, the police, and the military, often cooperating with one another. The victims are often set free and sometimes killed, sometimes celebrated and sometimes denied, sometimes dumped in public spaces, and sometimes forcibly disappeared. The constant is an armed commando taking and holding a person or group of people against their will, exercising near complete power over their bodies for a period of time, and then leaving them and their family and friends with very little means of explaining what happened, why, or who is responsible. In addition to the methodology of the levanton and the spectrum of suffering it inflicts, the common thread in these stories is the nebulous and volatile nature of power that the levanton represents. The use of terror and intimidation tactics by a broad mix of government and criminal actors, the uncertainty about who wields the power to carry out these acts and to what ends, and the failure of the formal apparatus of the state to protect people from the harm they cause, or even to acknowledge it, threaten more than just the bodily integrity of ordinary citizens. Their feeling of moral agency and the coherence of their communities are at stake. Levantones make people question whether their lives really matter and to whom. And that is from The Taken, True Stories of the Sinaloa Drug War by Javier Valdez Cárdenas. I'm Melissa Ford and this is Hard Country. Hello, everyone. I'm Joshua Trevino with my colleague, Melissa Ford. This is The Hard Country. Welcome, Melissa. Uh, a chilling and fascinating excerpt. How did you find that? Uh, is, 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 this, is this a book worth reading? Yes. So the, the reason that I picked it is because I found it very interesting. It's a collection of first firsthand accounts from ordinary people, specifically in Sinaloa, who have experienced these levantones that the, that the oh, passage talks about or that live in constant fear of it happening to them. And so I just thought that it was interesting uh, because today one of our main topics of conversation will be violence and disappearances in Mexico. So I found it relevant. Yeah. Um, but I know that we will go into that a little bit later in this episode. Okay, okay. Uh, whenever you like, actually. It's, it's it's one of the most heartbreaking aspects of the violence that's yeah. encompassing Mexico right now is this, this uh, phenomenon of the, the desaparecidos. Or I, I hadn't heard the term uh, levantones, Levanton. levantones before. It's, it's literally, it's literally the the taken ones, right? Yeah, yes. it's a modern term, unfortunately, unfortunately. Uh, and it's unfortunate yeah. that we have to have a term for it. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing that. It'll get a little okay. bit sad. We've we've you know been sent some recent articles of this happening in Mexico and yeah. the government's response to that, and I think it's definitely important to touch on. But to start off the episode, I want to start off with something a little bit more newsworthy. Um, as you know, the, yeah, the the GOP presidential debate um, candidate debate happened last Wednesday in mm -hmm. Milwaukee. That's right. Um, and here there was a discussion that the Republican candidates had about the u the use of military force uh, in Mexico. Yes. And I want to give you like a, a couple of different things that were said, and then I want to get your reaction. Please go ahead. So on one side there was um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis who when asked, he didn't hesitate to promise that he would send the U.S. military into Mexico to fight the cartels on day one if he becomes the next president of the United States. He said, the cartels are killing tens of thousands of our fellow citizens. We have to reestablish the rule of law and we have to defend our people. The president of the United States has got to use all available powers as commander in chief to protect our country. Mm -hmm. So that's one reaction. The second one is from former Vice President Mike Pence. And he actually supported partnering with the Mexican army to hunt down mm. and destroy the cartels. Yes. And another person who s 
still thinks that we should try to work um, with Mexico on this was actually former Arkansas governor um, Asa Hutchinson. Yeah. And he said that he would support limited military action, such as intelligence gathering against the cartels, but only if Mexico could be looped into that effort. He said that cooperation makes a difference and we cannot be successful going against the cartels unless we bring in Mexico as our part as our partner. Right. Right. Well, there, there's a lot there, if I may. Yes. Uh, and, and obviously with the proviso, which I feel like I have to issue uh, right off the bat, that uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which produces this podcast, is a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, right. So we don't endorse campaigns or candidacies nor involve ourselves in them. But we do talk about policy ideas. So in that spirit, I'll talk about the policy ideas that are behind uh, a lot of these. Um, it's 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 good, at least, let's start with the positive. It's good that there's a recognition, a general recognition among office seekers within the conservative movement, mm-hmm. within those who are you know engaged in the civic space in the United States, that there needs to be new thinking uh, uh, and certainly more aggressive action vis-a-vis what's happening in Mexico. Um, I, I wish it were possible to uh, proceed on a basis of full cooperation with the Mexican state. That used to be the basis on which we proceeded. And right. it was it was always imperfect because corruption has always been an issue within the organs of the Mexican state. But there was a time that was you know, not too long ago, uh, really until Felipe Calderon left office in December mm-hmm. 2012, um, when you could plausibly and I think rationally and defensively, you know, look at something like a Plan Colombia model for for Mexico. Now, Plan Colombia, for those of our listeners who who don't know, was was this um, was this uh, long unspooling, almost a generational effort. Yeah. And partnership between Colombia and the United States that really had at its core the reassertion of sovereignty. It wasn't really it, it gets it gets tagged, I think, incorrectly as as an anti-drug. Effort uh, and that 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 context provided a lot of its proximate cause and inspiration, but fundamentally, what it was about is was was restoring the Colombian state to full sovereignty over Colombia, which was a which was a, you know not just the operational aim but the strategic aim for us, and for the Colombian state itself. Yeah. Uh, and, and you could proceed. There was an effort um, with with um, you know the the Merida uh, partnership to proceed along the same basis with Mexico, uh, starting in uh, the basically the second half of the first decade of the century. Um, uh, that requires, though, a state that actually does want to uh, be sovereign over its own territory. It requires a state uh, that is not in league with the forces that are pushing it back. Uh, in Colombia, you mostly had those conditions uh, pertain, but in Mexico, unfortunately, and this is this has been true, I would argue, um, at the top level since Enrique Peña Nieto took office in December 2012. Uh, that, that just hasn't been true with the Mexican state. That there's, there's been this this kind of this spiral of deepening cooperation mm-hmm. between uh, between the state and its criminal syndicates to the point where you know the argument that we're making now in the year 2023 is that it's almost impossible to disentangle them. So it would be nice if we lived in in the world that uh, you know, you know Asa Hutchinson uh, would like, in which we in which we you know yeah. have have a partnerships and intel gathering. By the way, we used to have signal stations and in intel gathering in Mexico. Mexico itself, um, and that went by the wayside because uh, uh, under the pre regime, uh, the the previous presidency, uh, we got kicked out. Uh, and there was also at least one episode in which the Americans who were helping man these stations were attacked uh, by um, either cartels or individuals in league with cartels. Mm. Um, uh, same thing with the proposal that we work with the Mexican military. Yes, absolutely the ideal scenario. Again, local partner respect for their sovereignty, they take the lead in exercising stewardship over their country. But again, you and I have talked about this on the show, Melissa, what is Sedena now? Uh, mm. It is it is it is a trafficking organization unto itself. Right. Um, uh, you know, you don't have an entity that goes to the mat to rescue General Cienfuegos from you know El Padrino from U.S. Uh, prosecution in 2020 2021 uh, that is in any way clean or a viable partner for the United States. So what are we left with? We're left with um, uh, what uh, you know. Two of the candidates that I'm aware of, and there may be more out there, so I don't want to give any of them short shrift. But uh, I know that that former President Trump, uh, in you know, actually when he was in office, and also Governor DeSantis now, that he's a candidate. Both of them have proposed uh, a role for the United States Armed Forces uh, versus right. um, Mexican loss of sovereignty, Mexican aggression, Mexican antagonism, and so on. And uh, you know, my response is, let's have that conversation. Uh, it is right. time to 
change the basis on which on which we operate. And because the first obligation of the federal government and of every level of government in the United States is, you know, stated in our founding documents to secure our liberty, to preserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the right to those things, um, it ought to be defending us with every tool at its disposal. And that has to include the armed forces when a foreign actor is involved. So ask me anything you want, but we can go in depth on this because I think, I think yeah, this is, this is the know. time to have this conversation. <laughs> no, I agree. I just, I, I find it interesting. I think we talk about this a lot because we're in the weeds of policy. Sure. And you would understand for presidential candidates to know what's going on as well. But even regular people nowadays are starting to come to the realization that Mexico is not our friend and Mexico right. is not our partner. And I guess that's why for me, it's kind of baffling to see people like, uh, mayors or people that live at the border still think that it is a reality within our grasp to work with Mexico, even when they're seeing the reality of what's happening at the border. Yeah, um, I saw that uh, Victor Trevino. In he's Laredo. the mayor of Laredo. Yes, my fellow, my fellow Trevino. Yes, yeah, yes. your fellow Trevino. Nice guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard. I think you've told me that before. Yeah, but yeah. he just said that. Um, we need to coordinate with Mexico to fight cartels. So, sure. you know, the same language that a lot of people are using. And so it's just kind of baffling for me, for someone at the border, the mayor of someone at the border that's seeing everything that's happening, to still think that that's a, like a viable route. I have to have some empathy with, with, with the folks here, especially at the border. And, uh, you know, I, I think we may have mentioned on one of our previous shows, uh, Mayor Mayor Trevino and, and Laredo was very gracious in yeah. meeting with us yeah. um, uh, three weeks ago, I guess it was, which is a million years yeah. in the past at this point. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, in, in full candor, and this won't be a surprise uh, to him. You know that that would be a point at which which I disagree with him. But uh, I think out of charity, you know, we have to you know put, put ourselves into the shoes of an individual who is uh, a mayor um, or an alcalde of of, of of a border community, which in the case of Laredo is the largest inland port. Right. I think it's some. It might have challenged for largest port period um, uh, in the United States. And so this idea that you would develop an antagonistic relationship, you know, mm. from a commercial standpoint. Uh, with your counterparts right. across the river, seems seems less plausible. Now, you know, our our, our role uh, at the foundation, and I think as citizens writ large, is to kind of take the larger view and just say, you know, what's best for the state of Texas and what's best for the United States in general. And so we have our preferences. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to cast stones at, at, uh, at, at anybody who holds a contrary view, but what I am going to do is argue very strenuously that we need to um, proceed on a basis of realism. On that point, um, there's there's an article I would commend uh, to our listeners uh, today um, by uh, Rich Lowry, uh, who mm -hmm. is uh, I, I believe he's he's the editor, senior editor at National Review, also writes for Politico, uh, and so is is one of their uh, senior columnists. And you, you kind of have to look past the headline uh, on, right. the, on the piece because the headline is is abominable. But uh, but yeah, I can speak from experience. You know, it, it's the the guy who writes the piece and the guy who picks the headline are often two different people. So you don't always get the headline That's that you true. want. Uh, the headline is is kind of a kind of a knock on on Governor DeSantis, uh, which I think is unwarranted uh, in this in this in this case. But 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 the piece is quite interesting. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think Lowry is necessarily where where I am, or maybe where you know where you are on the issue of U.S. armed forces versus the Mexicans. Yeah. But I thought it was a very good piece, well written uh, and and very realistic in terms of setting forth kind of the stakes and 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 at the close of it, acknowledging that the reason that we're having this conversation is not actually because of you know a lot of what you see blamed from 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 AMLO or from the left, that it's demagoguery or that there's just a you know desire to demonize Mexico. None of that's really in evidence. Uh, what's really happening is that there are people who are looking at things, uh, you know, through the basically the through the lens of realism. They're seeing and understanding what's happening on the mm -hmm. Mexican side, and it's completely true. Uh, for those, I, I don't want to impute any views to Lowry on this, but you know, I, I think what he was what he was saying is that is that you know those who have views on either side of it, particularly those who are opposed to the use of armed force vis-a-vis -vis the Mexican state. Um, uh, need to start making a realism-based case mm -hmm. because the status quo, partnership, let's continue on doing what we're doing, let's keep on, you know, investing in and, in, you know, building up whatever it is, Sedana, local police forces in Mexico, you know, all these things that have just failed completely over the past generation, there has to be an alternative presented. Uh, we, we are presenting an alternative uh, because we do think that there needs to be a uh, much more aggressive stance toward the Mexican state and accountability imposed upon them, which is something you and I have talked about many, many times. Um, but for those who don't agree with that, 
you know, what I would say to them is, is uh, you know, make your proposal. You know, what's right. your answer? What's yeah. this? You know, what's uh, what should you do? Uh, I'll, I'll say one more thing on, on Larry's piece. You know, Larry, Larry does have a, a credible answer. I think it's an incomplete one in, in full candor, but it is, it is nonetheless credible. Uh, and, and one of the cases the, that he makes in this piece, and we'll link all this in, in the show description uh, so you can read it for yourself, uh, is that is that there's a lot more that we could do. We could we could go back to Trump style border closures, much more aggressive policing, all of which I actually agree with. I think I think all of that's correct. The argument that I would make is that I would I would say it's a yes and approach, not a not a no but. Like, like everything that that he puts in that article, I think is is is, is true and things that we ought to do. Um, but uh, at the same time, th- there needs to be one step further in in essentially compelling the Mexican state, you know, right. either either out of a sense of its own self interest and stewardship towards its people. Or, or out of fear of what the United States might do. Uh, I'm, I'm agnostic on their motivation, uh, but the Mexican state must exercise full sovereignty over Mexico and Mexican territory uh, and not share it with its own criminal cartels. And that's the end state that we need because, because until we do that, um, any measures that we undertake on the north side of the border yeah. are going to be uh, essentially holding back the tide. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I, I think you sent me that article this morning. So to our listeners, please continue to read. Yes. <laughs> Don't get deterred. Yeah. And I'll make sure to link it. Um, okay. thank so you. thank you, Josh. And since we're talking about what, what it would look like to take action at the border, I wanted to ask you about this very... This very unusual scenario that just happened at the border, I believe, this weekend, yes. where this te- Texas National Guard um, soldier apparently shot across the Rio Grande and wounded a Mexican man. Yes. Um, what can you tell us about this scenario? Because I've read a couple different things on it. This has been one of the most interesting examples of, of media failure. Yeah. In reporting that I've seen uh, in a while, uh, so so for those who don't know, uh, among our listeners, you know the Texas Army National Guard um, has been has been at the border as part of Operation Lone Star for quite some time. Right, uh, it's been underway for a while, and there was an incident, uh, I guess, seventy two hours ago. Yeah, uh, it's pretty recent. Maybe over the weekend, relatively recently. I think it was Saturday night. Oh, was it Saturday if night? If I'm not mistaken, I okay. think so. Okay. Uh, outside of Juarez, uh, outside of the kind of the Juarez El Paso conurbation, I don't know exactly where, but uh, you know, yeah. out, uh, way out in West Texas, almost in New Mexico. And the very short version is that there was a there was a um, a guy in Mexico. It's not even clear to me that he was a Mexican national, but there was a guy in Mexico whose name was implausibly enough Darwin was his first name reported. Oh, I yes. didn't know that. Yes, part. Uh, which is uh, anyway, if you believe that's his name, so be it. Um, but 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 he's shot. He is shot. Yeah. He's wounded. Thank God, it's not dead. Uh, but he is shot, and um, by a Texas Army National Guardsman who was on the U.S. side. Right. So this came to my attention uh, because the Texas Tribune, which is a um, is a, a very left wing uh, yeah. publication uh, here in Austin, uh, reported that the Texas National Guard had had uh, shot a Mexican guy who was uh, doing, uh, it was a very weird turn of phrase, uh, doing sports. It's not something you would say in English. Um, you would say it in Spanish, you know, I said the fourth or something like that, you know, but uh, um, uh, doing sports on the, on the banks of the Rio Grande in the dark. Uh, and and so and so it it, it, it seemed odd. So it, it sent it sent me on on a little bit of a kind of a kind of a wild rabbit chase because they said that they'd gotten the report as presented in kind of you know mainstream media, uh, by which I mean left wing media in the United States. But I repeat myself, uh, is is that is that you have this picture of of an American soldier who who shoots a guy in Mexico. You know, I mean, how yeah. cruel and unprovoked, unprovoked. is that? Yeah. Unprovoked. And, you know, this guy's just doing sports on the... I mean, I don't even know what that means. But Let he's the doing, man do sports. <laughs> doing sports on the banks of the Rio Grande and uh, at night, which seems totally innocent. Um, so, 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 so the Tribune story listed this report in uh, El Diario, which is, uh, I guess, you know, in the context of Mexican press, is, it's, it's, it's fine. I mean, the bar's low. Um, so I click back through to El Diario, and and, and look as as we've discussed, my Spanish is not is not ironclad, but uh, but I can read a newspaper article. Yeah. And, uh, and so and so the newspaper article um, said something completely different than what the uh, what the secondhand report in Texas Tribune said. Um, Texas Tribune, by the way, has since modified its story, so they're they're, oh, a, little, they're a little bit more accurate now. Good, um, good. I hadn't seen that. But we had to contact them to get them to do it. 
uh, and what El Diario said was that the guy was actually in the river trying to cross illegally. Uh, and so and so he's he's you know he's crossing illegally. He gets shot. He goes back. He tells Mexican authorities. El Diario reported all this. He tells the authorities uh, who are treating him that that he was that he was in the river trying to cross illegally. Uh, but then when he gets to the hospital and other media shows up, then he changes the story mm. and says that he's just an innocent guy doing sports uh, on the north bank of the river. So that phrase just I can't say it enough. It doing just cracks sports. me up. Doing sports, yes. <laughs> Um, uh, and that, and that's when his new story emerges—that he was yeah. doing sports on the on the on the on the South Bank, and you know, some American soldier, some Texas National Guardsman, shot him for no reason. Strange. So here, you know, we should exercise rational skepticism. I mean, not only not only was this guy clearly in the river; it sounds like he was trying to illegally cross for some reason. Uh, to me, that still didn't uh, that still didn't feel like we had the full story. And I ended up asking uh, some contacts who are in. Um, uh, they, I actually don't have their permission to say who they are online, but they're adjacent to you know National Guard Bureau and and uh, regular Army. So so a couple of, a couple of guys I know, and um, uh, you know they, they both said variations on the same thing. They said you know you know it's it's always possible. You know you can never you can never discount the possibility of you know negligent discharge or things like that. And it certainly isn't that uh, you know your average your average soldier is is you know hundred percent working. But it's very it's very rare. It's, it'd be extremely unusual yeah. to have a guy shoot across the river. Right. Uh, and so the thesis that was floated to me was that was that probably probably this guardsman saw. The, the individual who ended up getting shot, yeah. uh, and again, thank God, wasn't killed, but ended up getting right. shot, was probably either pulling a firearm himself and threatening the guardsman or threatening somebody in the river. And that brings us to the information that we have seen kind of filtering out um, through a lot of alternative sources in the past 24 hours, yeah. which it turns out that, uh, and again, treat this as unconfirmed, but you can sort of see how the story starts to kind of coalesce and resolve itself as we go, that this that this guy who was shot, you know, far from being just, you know, random, you know, Joe Darwin or Jose Darwin on the on the south bank of the river doing sports, right? He he apparently, uh, you know, treat this as unconfirmed, but again, you can see the pieces start to fall into place. Right. He apparently is in the river, crossing with a group. He is a trafficker mm. and he pulls a knife yeah. on somebody, threatens them, and at that point gets shot. Which is part of a duty to protect. You know, you have, you have, uh, you know, at, at this point, at this point, when you see, when you have, when you replace the picture that that U.S. press, U.S. media tried to paint of uh, an innocent random Mexican who's yeah. shot by, you know, this 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 villainous American soldier with what seems like actually happened, which is a human trafficker. You know, and when you hear a human trafficker, you know, think the word slave dealer in your head yeah. because we're not talking about a moral difference between the two who has a knife uh, pulled on one of the people that he's trafficking. Right. He was threatening them. Threatening, threatening that individual. Then at that point, it becomes much more understandable uh, how he might have gotten himself shot by yeah. a soldier from the American side. So we're not applauding the violence. You know, it's, 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 it's incredibly regrettable that that happens to anybody. But at the same time, um, uh, you know, if that is in fact the sequence of events, then thank God, in a literal sense, that that soldier was there to save that life. Yeah. You know, and that's that is the system working, and it's something that that you know we've said time and time again that that uh, Texas uh, and and the agents of Texas, Texas DPS, Texas National Guard, Texas Rangers, the whole apparatus of the state of Texas that has been doing its best to secure the border while the federal government largely has failed to do so. And that's not a disparagement of the individual border patrolmen, by the way, Many, most of whom are doing uh, the best job they can under terrible restrictions. They've done more to save lives of migrants oh, than, yeah. than, than anybody else has, simply by virtue of trying to control that border. Um, I want to add one other thing on this. Uh, you know, the the level of of demagoguery, misdirection, and misinformation that yeah. attaches itself to every border story uh, is, and you've seen this firsthand, is absolutely through the roof. I know we're going to talk about the Bowie's case in a second. That's been yeah. that's been one example of it. You know, you've one had this, great example. You've had this rhetoric about you know people have been drowning in the buoys, and I can see yeah. like ripped clothing and things like that, which is uh, none of which is true. And actually. the recent story of how it's like. Uh... The razor wire is killing geese. Did you see that? It's killing geese. Yeah. I uh, no, I hadn't heard that. Oh my gosh. Well then, I mean, well, uh, won't you think of the geese, right? Again, so, one more example. The razor wire is killing people. I, I saw this um, uh, video where it was. Um, uh, 
I think it was Julian Castro. It was Julian Joaquin, one of the Castro brothers, um, uh, you know, Democratic uh, uh, left wing mainstays out of San Antonio. Right. Yep. And, uh, and 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 he watched he watched his Twitter video and and he says I can see you know shredded clothing you know right here and uh, in, in the wire and and the implications that people have just been like coming through and tearing their clothes on it and their bodies are ripped to pieces. All, all of which is completely false and nobody's right. nobody's gone through the the the, the buoy barriers at all like that. Uh, and and it's likely just the the normal trash that accumulates on the right. uh, on the river, especially where there's where there's habitation, the the, the kind of the ur example of this to me was back um, uh, when there was the Haitian migrant crisis outside of Del Rio, which was little in, Haiti, yeah, uh, right, exactly. When you had the ten thousand Haitians come and they all congregated at once. on the all at once, yeah. right, which which was an organized operation from the Mexican side. Of course, it yes, was. Yes, it was. I mean, we know this right because of Todd Benzman's reporting because he actually went into northern Mexico and found out that they had all been released. At the same time, so this mm. is in September 2021, I think. Yeah, right? I yes. think so. Yeah. And so, and so that, that's when I went down there with several colleagues uh, to, uh, to 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 see it. But you had—I don't know if you remember this uh, actually, but do you remember the issue where the um, the the mounted border patrol agents were supposedly whipping? The, uh, oh, with yeah. the Haitians, yeah. yeah. So, which they weren't doing at all, right? It was it was a guy on a horse, and he had his reins, and so it, again, it was it was media that was uh, that was unequipped to understand like you know, how you ride a horse and that you require reins of the horse. And so there was a photograph and the reins were kind of flying fly, flying loose. And it was this idea that um, they were getting whipped. And so the president of the United States himself and like this moment of uh, comparative lucidity for him uh, said that, the, that these guys are going to suffer consequences. And it was, you know, it's going to be the, you know, you know, we're going to get them. And he threatened their career. And, and, and literally all they'd done is, is like ride their horses and try to get these people who are trying to enter the United States illegally. That that is that that is just the lie upon lie upon lie mm. that attaches itself to almost every one of these border stories, and we have to understand it as we as we listen to the coverage and we watch the conversation around it. Uh, you know, those of us who are there and are trying to tell the truth about it um, need to know that there's this there's, there's this entire press apparatus out there. Uh, unfortunately, it's just it's just the reality that is r- ready and willing to, to 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 lie about it, to slant it as much as they can, and if they um, they have so little attachment to the men and women who are trying to protect us right. and them uh, that they'll they'll lie about them and slander them. They'll lie about border patrol agents and say that they're whipping Haitians. And just as we saw this week, uh, they will promulgate lies about uh, soldiers. Uh, you know, you know, Texas Army National Guardsmen. You know, men who took an oath uh, to yeah. defend their state and their country and community, yeah. including the members of our media, and say that they're uh, that they're shooting across the river. Unprovoked, and unprovoked. Uh, you know, trying to you know, you know almost almost killing uh, an innocent guy who's who's just doing sports, uh, and that is. Um, uh, in any case, I, I've, I've spoken too long, but that's mm-hmm. something that, that strikes me as absolutely unconscionable, and I'm glad that we're here uh, to be able to uh, tell a little bit of the Clear truth. Clear it up a little bit. Yeah. What it reminds me of, I used to play this when I was little, but like a bad game of telephone where you just like pass the information on and it gets not only blown out of proportion, but mm-hmm. it gets completely rewritten. Yeah. And I, that's exactly what it reminds me of, not just this situation, but pretty much every single situation, as you said, that relates to the border. Yeah. And so since we're on that, I want to ask you a little bit so you can, since I've been gone, so you can fill me and the listeners up, uh, up a little bit on what's happening with the buoy situation. Oh, my gosh. Well, um, the buoy situation, very interesting. Uh, uh, so to recapitulate, Texas has put buoys in the river. We've already mm-hmm. talked about it a little bit uh, right. outside of Eagle Pass, and they're pretty effective, actually. So, yeah. so you know, it's impossible to swim under them. They do seem to block block crossing, and uh, th- th- this has been it's it's been so interesting because for all the things that Texas has done, the the insertion of these these buoy barriers into the Rio Grande has generated more response from both the Mexican and federal side oh, yeah. than than any other single thing that the state of Texas uh, has done. Response and outrage. Response and outrage, yes. And so we can theorize why. Um, uh, you know, m- m- my theory is that is that there's some income stream being disrupted from the Mexican side. And so the Mexicans yeah. are you know raising hell over it. Uh, they know that they've got a direct line, uh, thanks to our ambassador Ken Salazar, who's very close with the president of Mexico, yeah. and basically speaks for him uh, vis-a-vis the White House and kind of the State Department apparatus. Uh, they've got a line uh, into uh, the Biden administration in Washington, D.C. And so what we've seen as, as, as both Mexico and, and Washington, D.C. have moved against these buoy barriers principally, but not entirely, within the judiciary, 
uh, is that is that you've got Mexico City and Washington D.C. these two national capitals coming together to act against Texas. It's a very interesting phenomenon. It's very dangerous uh, yeah. as well, and and it's it's very overt. Uh, as well, uh, you know, those who have had the opportunity to um, to, to read a lot of the arguments and court filings, uh, the extent to which uh, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice, has advocated on behalf of the Mexican state versus the yeah. state of Texas and the people of Texas, says a lot. people of the United States, it says a lot, uh, and it's been extremely distressing uh, to see the avidity and readiness with which uh, Washington D.C has has really elected uh, to cooperate uh, with a foreign power against one of the one of the 50 American states in this case the state of Texas uh, and it should be an illuminating moment there is an article in the Federalist by by Greg Sindelar uh, our yeah. boss CEO yeah. of the Texas Public Policy Foundation uh, which 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 again we're gonna link in the show description here so you should go you should go look at it uh, but it's in the federalist.com it went up yesterday and uh, and it's Greg laying out what's really at stake in the litigation, the federal litigation against the border buoys outside Eagle Pass, Texas. And I think his point uh, that he makes in there is very astute, it's, it's very keen. It's not really about the buoys as such. It's not about the barriers as such. They're important, they matter, they should be defended, they should be present in the river because of the risk of human trafficking and legal crossing and so on. But what's really at stake here is whether the federal government wishes to continue to do its duty to the people and states of the United States. And, and and that that is such a such a fundamental point. Washington D.C. I think is is blind to the existential crisis that they're slowly creating with their actions on the border. It's been one thing because it's been going on for years and years for Washington D.C. to fail to secure the border, kind of from a from from a point of passivity, like they don't do what they ought to, they don't secure the border, therefore things happen. And, and and I think from a kind of a large kind of citizenship slash allegiance standpoint, that is stuff that is rationalizable um, because if it falls under the rubric of just generalized federal incompetence, which is a common story that everybody really understands and mm. knows, doesn't necessarily strike at the bargain, the compact that exists between the citizen and government, um, uh, then th then it's survivable. What's qualitatively different now is that we see the federal government taking positive actions to stop citizens, to stop states from defending themselves, in effect demanding that we submit to uh, essentially our own political dissolution. It'd be something that yeah. uh, that the founders would have found uh, incomprehensible. Oh, yeah. you know, one of the things that we've done at, at the foundation, because we've written extensively, we've got published research on this, I guess we should link this in the show description too. So yeah. you, uh, reader, you've got a lot of reading to do after you, after you watch this. Um, but we've, you know, we, we've talked about uh, a state's Article One, Section Ten uh, obligations under invasion, right under the Constitution. Like, what what constitutes invasion? What can a state do? And and in the course of doing that research, it became clear that one uh, that the, the founders anticipated a lot in their genius, but one thing that they didn't really anticipate was was uh, not just federal refusal to do its job vis-a-vis -vis just the uh, you know securing the existence and the permanence of our political institutions and our political community, um, but actually becoming uh, actively hostile to it, uh, which is which is now kind of the line that the Biden regime has stepped over. Uh, you know, it is it is it is incredibly dangerous and incredibly mm -hmm. foolish for anybody. Um, uh, you know, it's it's this particular administration that's done it, but for anybody in Washington D.C. Uh, to say, you know what, we are going to actively militate against uh, a state defending itself uh, within constitutional bounds. We're actively going to suppress any effort by the citizenry to ensure the continuity of its own institutions and its own way of life uh, and its own, again, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And to set itself at odds with and at enmity toward those imperatives um, really, really get into a situation where um, they, they raise existential questions that, uh, in full candor, are so profound uh, that I'm actually not going to explore them on this podcast uh, because they deserve to be yeah. written about uh, yeah. instead. Um, but they need to know, and you should go read Greg Sindelar's article uh, on the Federalist because it sets it forth, you know, very crisply and, and and I think very properly qualified. That they need to understand that they are inviting on a crisis, uh, and the crisis. Uh, fundamentally, is it's it's not because uh, migrants are coming across, although that's a that, that's a huge phenomenon and problem. It's not even because drugs are coming across, uh, although that's a phenomenon and a huge problem as well. Yeah. It is fundamentally because the the willingness 
on the federal side to force the rest of us to acquiesce to it is uh, striking at the heart of what it means to be part of the United States. And th thank God we have Texas uh, to stand up and and uh, act uh, in what I would describe as the as the actual American spirit and the actual constitutional spirit uh, in that vein. Um, but a lot of this is TBD. They're complicit. It's not just like being blind anymore. I They're think. They're complicit. That's a great way to put yeah. it. Yeah, that's exactly and, right. And, and 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 what a what an awful what an awful impasse uh, to be at when you see your own federal government that actively complicit in it. Yeah. If I can go on a speculative rant uh, here for a second, uh, which uh, not for the first time, uh, <laughs> mind you, but uh, but uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves why this is. Some of it's ideological. Uh, there is an ideological resistance to the idea that states could actually possess sovereignty under the 10th Amendment. Um, uh, that, that that grips, I think, modern progressivism, but definitely grips kind of kind of the entirety of Washington D.C. and those who are really really embedded in the federal regime, uh, in which of course President Biden is is Exhibit A. Yeah. Um, uh, and so and so so we have to be aware that there is that ideological component to it. But I think there's a pragmatic component to it as well. There's federal elections in both the United States and in Mexico, elections for the presidency next year. And you have to remember that both parties need something from the other. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's the Mexicans who have who have always been the more aggressive negotiators on that side. And I would bet, I have no direct evidence for this, I want to be very, very clear to the listeners here that this is just speculation on my part, but I think it's informed speculation. I would bet that part of the reason the feds are coming so hard, coming down so hard on Texas right now is because the Mexican side has said, this is our price. You must do mm. this for us in order to avoid, say, the migrant surge coming through in 2024 and screwing up your reelection. Well, you say it's just speculation. I would say I agree. And you, I actually- You know, if we, if we, if we had press that did its job, they would be asking these questions. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I apologize for interrupting, please. No, 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 thank you. I, I actually wasn't gonna bring this up, this episode. This was for a previous episode, I mm. think the one last week. But it seems to me, like, like you said, it seems to me like the Biden administration is tripping over themselves to try to get along with Lopez Obrador and to try to get along with the Mexican government. Right. And just some very brief examples that we talked about, I think we texted about this, um, is this letter, right, that AMLO just sent to Biden. Mm -hmm. um, it starts with that, but basically there was, it was delivered by the foreign minister, by Barcena. Yeah. And in the letter, AMLO says a few things that I think that are worth noting. Um, he talks about how Como usted sabe, nuestras relaciones marchan por muy buen camino. He says, mm -hmm. like, our relationship is going in a really good path. Yes. And then he says this, which I think is really interesting. Usted es el primer presidente en décadas que no hace publicidad construyendo muros en nuestra frontera, ni mucho menos actúa de manera irresponsable e inhumana, como lo hace el gobernador de Texas. Yes, right. And so, uh, so sorry. <laughs> Anybody, anybody who ends up running against Joe Biden in the general election should quote that directly. It is you're the like, first president it, in generations to build zero wall. Yeah, yes. and to say like you're not acting in an irresponsible and inhumane manner the way that the governor of Texas is by placing buoys with razor wire in the Rio Grande. Yes, it's so he's saying all of these things, and and then at the end he's like all like oh we're we're BFFs. He invites Biden to come. Um, and then he weirdly, we, we, we talked about how weird this was, but he starts flaunting his projects. He invites Biden to come to Mexico so he can see some of his projects. Oh, sure, yeah. Which is so weird. So I wanted to unpack that. And then I also thought it was interesting because in the letter, Emlo is praising Biden, right? He starts by saying, like, Biden has made such great decisions on behalf of his country and of his people. Mm -hmm. And then... You know, in return, it seems like Biden is in return after that trying to appease AMLO because there was this um, meeting between Secretary Blinken and Foreign Minister Barcena. Yes. And in it, only one Mexican media outlet was allowed to ask questions. Can you guess which one? Oh, La Jornada. Of course, it yes. was the only one, yes. which is so interesting because we know this is the one newspaper that's affiliated with the AMLO administration. It's basically the Pravda of Mexico. It's yes. it's, it's, it's like the house organ. It's the uh, like the like the Chinese Global Times. It's like pro yeah. AMLO, yeah. pro Cuba, pro Venezuela. Yeah. And so these are just two of of so many examples of what's happening, but. Um, I just thought that would be interesting to insert. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm glad you did. It's, it's. Uh, th I mean, there's just so much. There, 
there's so much going on uh, with all of that. And, 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 you know, what's interesting is, is, is to think about what a turnaround that is from uh, AMLO's previous attitude yeah. to President Biden. Because, uh, you know, he was, uh, AMLO was, was pro-Trump. Uh, in the beginning, mm-hmm. he he was one of the few world leaders yeah. who would not congratulate Biden uh, on on uh, winning the presidency, or I think he was the last one, the last major one, to do it, yeah. um, uh, because uh, you know he you know, he he believes that he's had the presidency stolen from him tw- at least twice uh, uh, himself, and so and so. But now, but now he's praising now he's praising uh, Biden to the skies, and and uh, thinks that um, it's weird. Can we you, talk a little bit about the remittances issue too? Because I think that, yeah, that yeah, uh, yeah. Did, did you have that on your list? I didn't mean to. I know I do. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So there, there's been these recent report, reports on remittances and how they're related to cartels. And the numbers is Mexico recently registered record remittances of more than 58 billion last yes. year. Yes. And that is Huge. when you put it up next to other things. That is more um, than the earnings that it's received from both international tourism mm-hmm. and oil revenues. So it's huge, yeah. like you say. Uh, and so I obviously, fairly, this has led to a lot of suspicion that um, these numbers are being boosted by more than just really hardworking Mexicans in the U.S. sending money back to their families. Yeah. So this is an investigation that was launched by uh, Routers, and in it they interview recipients, and the findings show that drug cartels are using remittances, mm-hmm. and they're using many like legal um, networks of money transfer services that help migrant workers send money to their families in Mexico, their families back home. Yeah. But they're using that to for the the sales of their drugs in the U.S. Yeah. And um, there's a few different sources that give numbers on this. So one is an anonymous U.S. government official who works on illicit finance, didn't want to be identified, mm-hmm. but he said he believes that up to 10% of all Mexico-bound remittances are drug money that's being moved by criminal organizations. Okay. And then another estimate comes from Signos Vitales, which is a Mexican think tank. Sure. And they say that 7.6, this is much more specific, but 7.6 of all remittances in 2022, <clears throat> for perspective, that's roughly 4.4 billion, yeah. came from organized crime. Yeah. That's a, there's a lot more like numbers and research that corroborate this, but this is a very interesting report. There's still stuff coming out on it, but it raises a lot of interesting questions. It does. It does. It, it's it's. It's so interesting. You, you know, you, you and I have talked about on the show this idea that um, that uh, when somebody is trafficked across the border, the border is not the the, the destination. Uh, it's the midpoint right. of the trafficking journey, and the, the the destination for the trafficking journey is actually the job uh, or whatever you know point of earning the trafficked person ends up at in the United States, and then that becomes a a source of revenue for the trafficking organization right. later on because you're either paying off you know a debt which you have to put in quotes or so on and so and so there's no question to me but that the remittance system 58 yeah. billion uh you it's know, a lot of money so 10% you know 5.8 yeah. bill uh it's it's not it's not pocket change yeah. that this is that this is all part of of kind of the business model this very canny business model uh, of the cartels and so for us on the US side i mean the question becomes uh you know why do we allow it uh the answer, and there is an answer to it, is that is that we allow it, uh, frankly, out of out of compassion. Um, uh, you know that there there are a tremendous number of families, uh, and this has been true for generations, that depend upon remittances from Mexico or from the United States back to Mexico or to other places in Latin America for the support of, of family members. And so, like that kind of model where you have, you know, what I describe as sort of like the virtuous worker who goes and works uh, in El Norte and sends money back for the upkeep of, you know, wife, kids, and so on. Um, uh, you know, in itself ought to excite our admiration. The problem is that that now that every single person is trafficked, thanks in large part to the conscious and deliberate breakdown of the Mexican state, uh, all these individuals are prisoners. And so this tremendous flow of right. $58 billion or, you know, whatever the true figure is, um, uh, right. is, 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 is part of what funds politics and criminality within Mexico itself. Very interestingly, uh, you know, we've discussed this on the show before, but it's worth repeating. There is a cult of the migrant uh, now under the Morena regime. This idea that uh, you know, you know, you know, 
no está en, no, uh, what was it? Uh, no estás en México, pero México está en tu corazón, right? Yes. You know, so yeah. you're, you're not in Mexico, but Mexico's in your heart. Right. Um, uh, which is which is cold comfort when it's January in Chicago, but uh, you know, you know that 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 sentimental. Um, I don't know what you call it, but that sentimental mythos is undergirded by a cold business proposition uh, because these individuals, you know, who are not all bad people, by the way, you know, you know, you can't, you know, but 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 they are, you know, in aggregate, funding this terrible machine, which is another reason, kind of tying it all together here, that the Mexican state reacts so strongly against anti-illegal immigration measures like yeah. the border buoys, because yeah. again, if this all stops. And all migration is legal, then that money dries up, and uh, the remittances then suddenly become, uh, in many ways, a clean source of funds that actually do go to the support of you know families and kids and things like that. Right. Uh, and that's that's of course you know what we would like uh, to see, but it's not what they want to see, and that's why they're fighting us. Yeah, and maybe that's why Amlo got so angry when he was asked about it. He called routers liars, and he called the think tank that I was telling you about, Signos Vitales. Yeah. Um, he said that they were just releasing information to punch him, to oh, yeah. punch his administration. Everything, everything for him is is uh, if it's if it's personal. contrary to his yep. narrative. Yeah, it's personal. They're doing it to make me look bad. You know, how can you? And so, and so, which but, which is uh, strangely an effective tactic for him. If this information, I know I just gave like a couple of percentages, but if that's not compelling enough, I want to. Please. I have like 10 things. I know we don't have time for no, all of that, fine. but yeah. I want to leave you with some that I found really compelling. Please. Um, some questions that the report raised. Mm -hmm. So apparently states like Minnesota, which as you can imagine, have very tiny Mexican populations. Yes. Are apparently sending massive remittances to Mexico. Mm which is very unusual. But apparently the remittances from Minnesota to Mexico grew by 585.3% in recent years. I don't know if you had heard that. 585.3%. 585.3% in recent years. And this is according to Signos Vitales. Okay. And they are using information from Mexico's central bank. And so this would place Minnesota only right after California and Texas on that list. And Minnesota has a tiny Mexican population. How interesting. So just to make you think. And then okay. what's what's equally curious to me that I read from this report, and there's a lot more where this came from. I wish we had the time. But the destination that the remittances are going to, um, the remittances that are going to Chiapas are huge, and they're rapidly increasing. Oh, yeah. San Cristobal de las Casas received more remittances in tw last year in 2022. Mm-hmm than any other Mexican municipality. Okay. And then Comitlan, Comitán de, de Dominguez, which is, as not a lot of people know, but as we know, transited by all of the migrants that are being smuggled across the border from nearby Guatemala. Comitán de los Dominguez? Is that, yeah. in, is that in Chiapas? Yes, that's okay. in Chiapas. So, so I, 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 like the people you're referencing, I did not know that. So sorry, go oh, ahead. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, right, ahead. it's basically what people that are coming from Guatemala you cross the Tapachula. Tapachula is like usually the the the, the crossing point from Guatemala, and then uh, sorry, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead. but yeah. what I so Comitán de Dominguez is where the migrants that have been smuggled across the border from Guatemala, which we know right now is sending most the most migrants to okay. Mexico. They have to transit through that portion. I did not know that. Okay, and right, so please. they they ranked top ten as well of municipalities where remittances are being sent to. That's interesting. So they're yeah. so they're going back to um, uh, if I if I understand what you're what you're implying here, because because that kind of that's kind of mind blowing to me. When when you tell me that Chiapas is a big destination for remittances. Um, that doesn't that doesn't automatically raise a flag for me because Chiapas right. is you know it's pastoral and it's 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 a sending it's a sending point uh, so I get that but if you're telling me that a place like um, sorry Comitán de los Dominguez is that is that Comitán de Dominguez Comitán de Dominguez okay yeah. so Comitán de Dominguez um, which itself is a transit point. It's not a sending point. It's a transit point for people coming elsewhere, but it's getting the remittances. Right, and the, huh. they don't usually have like very high levels of migration. So From that, that makes place. it, yeah, that so, makes it unusual. So, so, the, the, so this, the, there's somebody organized there that's receiving these funds. And it's yeah, be... and an, and another question since we're talking Please. about that specific that's place. That's interesting. Yeah, um, in all of these 227 municipalities, the households, all of the households on average, received more than one remittance monthly. Which is interesting, and the the other question that I thought was interesting was, 
why, if the amount of income from remittances are analyzed in many of these municipalities, why is extreme poverty, such as in Chiapas, still due to due to income still rampant despite these additional incomes? So it's not, you know, if, if they're tracking the remittances in these municipalities, why is everyone still so poor? Mm-hmm. If the remittances that they're receiving would take 100% of the population above the poverty line. Yeah, yeah. Something else is happening to it. Yeah. There's there's an organization that's either skimming or simply uh, redirecting. Yeah, yeah. this is very and interesting. I, I will also link the report. I found it fascinating. But I you. think there's new stuff coming out on it daily. So there should be more updates by the time we film the next episode, hopefully. It's a lot of big stuff going on, and, and it really feels like the coming uh, 18 months is going to be an inflection point uh, yeah. in in this entire in this entire saga. So we'll, well see. Yeah, and I know we're running out of time. I, yeah. I we did promise our listeners that we would say a little bit about all the violence that's been happening in Mexico. For some reason, and and I know this is constant. I know like there's one disappearance every hour under AMLO, but for some reason, I feel like in the last week. I have been getting like more people sending me these like horrific articles about things happening in Mexico. I don't know yes. if you feel that way, or maybe in the last two weeks. Did we talk? We didn't talk about the fire. No, uh... we didn't get to it last week. So I want to talk about the violence in Mexico. And and before okay. I do that, I want to go back to um, what I started the episode with. Los levan, uh, levantados. Levantones. And Levantones. so I kind of. I, I started with a story and I kind of left you hanging, um, mm. which I'm sure you expected because that's how a lot of cases go in Mexico. Yeah. You have a disappearance and then you never hear anything back. Um, but in this case, um, there's more to the story. Please. So I started off with a story about Sandra Luz Hernandez and the forced disappearance of Edgar, her son. Mm-hmm. So... Sandra became like a big activist in Mexico. I hadn't heard of her before, but she became like a huge activist. She kind of became like the voice of all the family members that had lost. I know the end of you the story. You know the story. No, 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 oh, please continue for, for our listeners. Destroyed me. This is so sad. Go ahead. So, so she became like the, the voice of these family members and she would organize like local searches with like bloodhounds and all of these things for, for the missing people in Mexico. Yes. And she, as she said, she said she like became a rock in the shoe of the authorities. Or mm-hmm. like a thorn in their side, but one day after she was meeting with the authorities, she got this phone call from someone saying that they had information on the whereabouts of her son Edgar, and so she obviously was like she wanted to know. So they gave her an address to go to. She went to that address, and as she was arriving, a car pulled up. Someone jumped out, and they shot her 15 times. That's right. So horrible story. Um, I'm sure, like, like I hadn't heard it before, but you, you've heard it before. Yeah. But I just thought that this was, like, a very devastating story that tells, you know, the story about one more victim of the, the drug war that we don't often hear about. It's the people that are seeking out the truth, the activists that are seeking out the truth. She had a, she, if I remember correctly, if I, and if I'm not confusing her with another uh, mother, because there, there are a few mothers out there who... There's lots of stories like this. There's lots of stories like it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think this is her. She she had said because somebody asked her about what about the risk of getting killed because she was making enemies. Um, uh, you know the police don't want to be pushed on this. The authorities don't want to be pushed on this. The 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 criminals. Uh, you know although in some cases I repeat myself because often it is the police and the authorities who do these things. Yeah. Um, she was asked about the risk that she would be killed and uh, she 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 had said um, uh, they already killed her when they took her oh. son. Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah. I heard it's a awful. similar story, but it was the lady that was looking for her daughter that also got killed, like in plain sight. Oh so there's gosh. a lot. It, yeah. There's a Netflix documentary about this one. Yeah. But so I wanted to, to use that story to talk a little bit more about the, the, the news stories that we got and asked you about the response of the Mexican government to some of these stories. Jeez. So obviously we know like it's not equal around the state, like mm-hmm. it's concentrated in certain areas. Um, but the numbers of the disappearances and murders in Mexico are like incredibly shocking once you look into them. Um, but some of the horrific news stories that we've talked about that we've recently seen, uh, apparently this Friday there was seven bodies recovered which appeared to belong to 13 missing migrants. Um, so apparently this just came out, but the murders happened over a dispute over control of human trafficking routes between the Sinaloa and the Juarez cartel. Okay. And so this um, 
migrant these migrants failed to pay the derecho de piso money, which sure. is like the right of passage money. Yes. And so and so they were they were killed. It cost them their lives. Mm. The second story, um, which David sent us, our journalist in Mexico City, is about how frozen hacked up bodies of 13 people were fi- were found in ice chests and freezers in Veracruz. Jeez. Which seems to be a sign that the massacre of migrants is is coming back to Mexico. But the reaction of that lo- local Morena governor was that um, basically he just said, like he tried to downplay it. And what AMLO said about it is like, no, ya no hay masacres, is what he said. And then the third story, I think you oh, said Oh, no, me, no. Uh, they're not massacres. There's no more. Ma- there's yeah, no, no more I, massacres. Yeah. yeah no, no, since I, his, no, okay, okay. Uh, sorry, since his hugs and bullets, right. very successful strategy. Yeah. And then you you sent me this story, but last week there were five friends from Lagos de Morena. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I don't even want to like go go in. I, I'll link we should, it. We should talk about this briefly though. Do you mind? Do you, you, yes. want, you want me to do it or do you want? Go ahead. You don't want? Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's it's it's disgusting. It's disgusting even in the context of. Mexican violence, um, uh, but essentially there's these five buddies who're going out and they're they're, so like they're, a fair. they're young they're like eighteen nineteen I mean they're not even they're not even that old yeah and uh, a lot of the cartels use um, force recruiting basically they'll they'll, yeah. they'll kidnap somebody and then they'll brutalize them and, and things like that and we've known for for years and years that uh, that uh, you know if, if you read about Kind of the cruelty and just this, the like the, the these disgusting and abhorrent methods used by like the Wagner Group uh, in Russia, where you know one of the mm-hmm. things that they do is they you know part of your training is is you like you have to kill one of your classmates or something like that. Like it's 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 just awful. Well, the cartels do that too. It's a method of dehumanization. Once you do it, you're complicit. You know you've had that yeah. that that bit of your soul kind of like stolen basically and 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 stripped away. And so it happens over and over. Uh, the, the the theory is is that is that these the, these five buddies were um, kidnapped, and they were it was it was an intent to um, forcibly recruit them for the uh, for the Jalisco cartel. I yeah, think. they were told they would get a job. They were told they would get a job. They were, they were going to take it whether they wanted to or not. And uh, it has become a notorious case because there is a film that uh, got posted on social media. Uh, I would encourage anybody listening to not look for this actually. Yeah. So, so we're not going to link to it. No. Um, uh, but it's out there and. Um, they forced these five boys who were good friends to uh, kill each other, um, uh, bludgeon one another to death, and uh, uh, and it's it's even in a Mexican context uh, that is that is that still retains a capacity to shock. And what's especially disgusting about it is that the president of Mexico himself was asked about it as Mañanera. And he pretended he couldn't hear the question. Yeah. And then he mocked it. Afterwards. He made a joke. He made a joke about it. It's a joke. It's a joke uh, to this guy, but we know whose side he's on. And it's not funny. There's a hundred and ten thousand, so no. you know, missing people right now in Mexico. There's people being killed. This this video, I haven't watched it. Obviously, I don't want to. Don't. But it's horrific. And then they found the bodies. They were all killed in horrific ways. They were decapitated. I'm not even going to talk about it. Yeah. But their parents had to identify them. Yeah. And so obviously, like people were horrified by this. Not that it doesn't happen often, but they kept shouting questions at him, and for him to make like a very distasteful, very cruel joke. Oh yeah. Like it, it's just so disrespectful to the families, and mm. um, it just you know it's it's interesting because it brings us back to something that we've talked about a lot. Yeah. He's never condemned these actions by cartels. Still. No. no. But but. You know, he refuses to meet with like the mothers of, of of people, the family members of people that have been murdered, uh, people that have gone missing. You know, it, it's clear what side he's on. I think I think this is actually a good uh, th- this is a good note uh, probably to wrap up the episode on. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's important to understand. You know, all of our policy advocacy and analysis, 100% of it is done uh, 100% from the perspective of what's best for Texas. And what's best for the United States? Uh, is, there's no question in my mind that we have a preferential option for American citizens and all things, and that's as it should be because because you know our bonds of allegiance and citizenship uh, compel us to that. But I do want to note when you ask yourself, you know, especially for our friends on the left, uh, the ones who will spread false stories about border patrolmen, you know, whipping migrants, about Texas National Guardsmen shooting guys doing sports on the south side of the river, um, uh, who actually cares? about 
about the people of Mexico, who actually sees them as bearers of the image of God, who actually sees them as individuals who deserve to live lives of dignity uh, and uh, free of the terrorization that reigns across that country. It's us. It's, it's, it's us who are raising questions about use of armed force, who are talking about the necessity of shutting down trafficking, who are advocating for control and even closure of the border. And we cannot forget that. We're the ones who, who, who actually care about, uh, candidly, about the Mexicans. Uh, and for you and I in particular, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's because of personal interest. You know, you're from South America. I'm, I'm uh, ethnically half Mexican. Um, uh, but I would include all of our colleagues, uh, you know, in this movement with us uh, in, that, in that moral estimation. And, and we, have to, we have to remind people over and over that we do have that moral high ground on this. So thanks for... Well, I think that's a wrap with yeah. that. Thank thanks, you, Melissa. Josh. It's good to be back in the studio with you. And good to have you back. Thank you to all of our listeners. We'll see you next time. <laughs>